Today is the beginning of what's called Sukkot. That is the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's running from this Sunday to next Sunday. So we're going to study that today. Leviticus chapter 23. So please turn in your Bibles there. You may have noticed when you were coming in that we have our own sukkah out there. So that's kind of like that tent structure that's out there. And I want to thank the Medinas who uh, helped put that together, Bruno and Robin. And then they had some help. Joe and Art helped uh, with the constructing of it or putting it all together. And then we had the plazas and the Dexters who contributed different things to it. So thank you, all of you who helped out with that. It's a neat visual to see what a sukkah actually is. And you say, what are you talking about, Pastor Michael? What's this stuff about a sukkah? Well, it's from Star Wars. You remember the little creatures that sang, sukkah, sukkah, sukkah. Never mind. No, it's not from Star Wars. So a sukkah is basically a temporary dwelling and it's what the children of Israel lived in during the wilderness wanderings. They lived in tents, and they were three-sided shelters, and they would cover them with whatever they could cover them with as they moved throughout the wilderness wanderings. The feasts of Israel remember, they look back on what God has done and also look forward. So let me just read the opening verses of Leviticus 23. Why don't you stand with us for the reading of God's word. 23.1. The Lord spoke again to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. Now let's go all the way to verse 33. Again the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the 15th of this seventh month is the Feast of Booths. That's the idea of Sukkot, or tabernacles. For seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly... You shall do no laborious work. Now notice the repetition. These are the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, to present offerings by fire to the Lord, burn offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each day's matter on its own day. Besides those of the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts and besides all your votive and free will offerings, which you give to the Lord on the exactly the 15th day of the seventh month. That's where we are now today. When you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths or sukkahs for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. You can have a seat. Father, thank you for your calendar. We call this the ceremonial calendar of the people of Israel. But these feasts have great significance for both Jew and Gentile because they point back to Messiah and point forward. They point to the first and second coming of Messiah, but they also point to a future millennial kingdom, namely this Feast of Tabernacles. And I pray that you would show us what you want us to see, wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Now, if you look back at, at Leviticus 23 in verse 2, you'll notice, and you've seen this several times as we read, the Lord's appointed times. Now, Alex has taught the last couple of feasts for us. He taught us on uh, 
the Feast of Yom Teruah. That's the Feast of Trumpets. And then the Feast of Yom Kippur. And now we're at the Feast of Sukkot. Everybody just look at someone and say, Happy Sukkot. Now, Sukkot is the, like the name Su and then a coat. Sukkot. Everybody got it? Okay. So now, the appointed times of the Lord are, is the Hebrew word, if you're taking notes, moed, like I mowed my lawn, M-O-W-E-D. It's an appointment, a fixed time or season. This is what the appointed times are. Specifically, a divine appointment. So when God laid out these seven feasts, these were appointments. Three of them, three of the seven were mandatory for all able-bodied Jewish males to pilgrim from wherever they lived, northern Israel, maybe another land, to the area of Jerusalem. Three major feasts. They had to come for Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the early summer, and then our feast before us, Tabernacles in the fall. These were the three mandatory pilgrim feasts. And the people of Israel would crowd into that area because it was an appointment. Specifically, God was calling out his people to assemble to him. Here's a good analogy. If you got a wedding invitation, save the date, and then they say, so-and-so is going to marry so-and-so, and it's going to happen at five in the afternoon at this location. Your job is to be there when it happens. There's no negotiation. There's no, well, maybe I can make it, maybe I can't. If you're going to go, if you are SVP, you have a divine appointment to be there. This is what the idea is. And then these are, notice, these are holy convocations. So Leviticus 23 says, these are the Lord's appointed times. They are holy convocations. If you have an NIV, they are sacred assemblies. What does that mean? That's the Hebrew word transliterated into English, mikra, M-I-Q-R-A. It means a convocation, a calling together or a calling out, like come to the wedding or come to the feast. And it can have the idea of a dress rehearsal. So some of you who grew up around plays or musical theater, you know that you had rehearsals and then you had a final dress rehearsal. And that dress rehearsal was to get you ready for the actual performance. Well, the Jewish people had dress rehearsals and these were all pointing to other things. Let's put up the seven feasts of Israel just for a moment. So behind me are the seven feasts of Israel all recorded in Leviticus 23. You're going to notice that the feasts are in two clusters. One cluster is the spring, which starts with Passover, then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's known as the Feast of Matzah. When we take communion, we take an unleavened uh, piece of bread with uh, pierced marks in it and burn marks on it. That's, that's actually matzah. That's uh, to denote that Christ was without leaven. And we being in him are without leaven as well. And then the Feast of first fruits, all in the spring, all fulfilled in a weekend. Jesus died on Passover Friday, buried on unleavened bread Saturday, rose on the Feast of first fruits Sunday, all in a weekend, and he is the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, from the time of the Feast of first fruits in the spring, the Jewish people do something called the counting of the Omer. They count seven Sabbaths plus one or 50 days. That's where we get the idea of Pentecost. That's the idea of 50 from the Greek. And 50 days from first fruits to Pentecost is the feast of Shavuot. Now you guys will remember that in Acts chapter two, that's when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. That's when Peter preached his Pentecost sermon and 3,000 people came into the kingdom. Without a megaphone, he preached boldly and the people got baptized and came to the Lord. Now, right now, those four feasts have been fulfilled by Jesus at his first coming and by the coming of the Holy Spirit on the feast of Pentecost. Everybody with me so far? Now, scholars would say we now live between the times from the coming of the Holy Spirit and the church age 
to the anticipation of the Feast of Trumpets. Now, some of you may have heard that people were predicting the end of the world uh, a couple weeks ago. Do you know why they were doing that? Because they had this calendar. And they, they knew that the Feast of Trumpets was happening on a specific day on our calendar. So what they did is they basically said, well, uh, it appears many people think that Jesus is coming on the Feast of Trumpets. And that's why they continue to predict the end of the world on this feast. Now, will Jesus come on the Feast of Trumpets? I think quite possibly he will. You say, but Jesus said no man knows the day or the hour. Do you know that the Feast of Trumpets was known as the Feast of the Unknown Day? And they had to have verification of the moon and so forth by a couple of witnesses before they could proclaim the feast. So some people think that Jesus is using kind of hidden language, no one knows the day or the hour, relating it back to the Feast of Trumpets. I'll let you chew on that and you know that, that would be a debatable matter. Now from Yom Teruah, that first feast in the fall, which we have studied, the Feast of Blowing or the Blowing of the Shofar, then you have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now, last Wednesday, Alex taught us on that. And we saw the solemnity, the soberness of that feast. That was when the nation would confess their sins on the head of the goats. One goat for the sacrifice, one goat as a scapegoat. And then that scapegoat would be released into the wilderness. Now, from that feast until the Feast of Tabernacles is five additional days. And now this feast is a feast of rejoicing. You go from uh, Yom Kippur, which is kind of a somber, a solemn uh, feast, to now the Feast of Tabernacles, which is actually a feast of joy. You're commanded, isn't this cool, to rejoice for seven days. I give you permission. Have joy all this week. It's a command from the Lord. It's a season of rejoicing and it's an appointed time. Why should we rejoice? As believers, we rejoice because our sins have been atoned for, amen, once and for all and for all time. So we are in a season of joy, and yet we live in a fallen world. We live between the times. Jesus has come and fulfilled those three spring feasts. The Holy Spirit came on the Feast of Pentecost, but now we wait. What do we wait for? the return of our Lord at the blast of the trumpet when he will come and finally we will get the fullness of our redemption and he will dwell with us and we will dwell with him. That's the idea of tabernacles forever. Amen? Now these are the appointed times of the Lord. They look back and they look forward. We know that the spring feasts have been fulfilled Pentecost has been fulfilled and we are waiting for the second coming when Jesus will fulfill the fall feast and then we will enter into something called, some people call it the millennial reign of Christ. What is that? That's when the king is on the throne of David and he rules and reigns in righteousness over the entire world. Now that is what's before us in the feast and it just so happens that our normal worship days have fallen on the feast days. So here we are at the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, moving all the way from this Sunday to next Sunday. That's why we're focusing on it, in case you wondered. And so the, the people of Israel had these instructions about these feasts. Now, uh, I want you to just turn to Exodus, just the book before for a second. Let me just show you uh, the mandated feasts that the Lord had for his people. 34, Exodus, just the book before where we were. Notice 34, 22 of Exodus says, you shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks, that's Pentecost, that is the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering, that is tabernacles at the turn of the year. Notice Three times a year, your, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. So that would be in Jerusalem where the temple was, the God of Israel. So there is the instruction. And notice that this particular feast is called the Feast of Ingathering. It was the final harvest 
for the turn of the year. It was all the harvest being brought in. Harvest is an important concept and it points to a spiritual reality. There will be a harvest of souls in the final uh, gathering of God's people. He will gather together his elect from the four winds, Jesus said in Matthew 24, from one end of the sky to the other. Jesus uses harvest imagery in Matthew 13, Revelation 14 and 15. Go over to Deuteronomy, just pass up Leviticus and uh, Numbers and go to Deuteronomy. One more reference to these feasts and the mandatory nature of three of them in Deuteronomy 16. Take a look at verse 13. It says, You shall celebrate the Feast of Booths, 16.13 of Deuteronomy, seven days after you have gathered in from your threshing floor and your wine vat. There's a focus on a grape harvest here. You shall rejoice. Notice it's a feast of rejoicing in your feast, you and your son and your daughters and your male and female servants and the Levite and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your towns. Seven days you shall celebrate a feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in the work of your hands so that you shall be altogether joyful. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's matzah or Passover. At the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot or Pentecost, that's the early summer. And the Feast of Booths, that's Sukkot, the idea of tabernacles or a tent. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So when the people came back to Leviticus chapter 23, they would come with Offerings, but they would come with glad hearts and they would sing as they made pilgrimage to the Holy Land. They would sing from the Hallel Psalms. They would sing songs of joy in caravan. These particular feasts would be attended by Jesus and his family. Uh, Jesus was a Jewish male and he would attend all the mandatory feasts every year. Remember, there's a story in the Gospel of Luke of Jesus being in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And remember, his parents end up looking for him. And where were you? Didn't you know I needed to be in my father's house? What's interesting to think about is all the Passover imagery that was surrounding Jesus and his family as he uh, made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem would be fulfilled in him. When the Passover lamb died and he watched that, that would ultimately be fulfilled in him. He was and is our Passover lamb. So each time he came down for the mandatory feasts, they were going to be in many ways fulfilled in him. And so this feast had two primary celebrations on a daily basis other than the normal sacrifices. Let me back up and tell you about the sacrifices. Uh, This would be known as a feast for ingathering or tabernacling. And what they would do is they would sacrifice bulls every day. On day one, they would sacrifice 13 bulls and then it would go down in descending orders. if If you're interested, I think it's Numbers 29, starting about verse 12. 13 on day one, 12 on day two, 11 on day three, and on down the line. And it totaled 70 bulls. The rabbis believed that the number 70 represented the nations of the world. And so they saw Sukkot or tabernacles as an invitation or an ingathering of the nations to God or to the God of Israel. Remember that Israel was chosen to be a light to the nations. They weren't just chosen to be this little nation that kind of cloistered themselves off from the world. They were supposed to be the light to everybody. And so what would happen during this feast is two major rites or celebrations. They would do something in the day called a water pouring ceremony. That water pouring ceremony was to remember how God provided for Israel from the rock. You remember when they didn't have water and they were thirsty and they were complaining And God allowed Moses to strike the rock and the water flowed out. Well, each day of this feast, 
looking back to the tents and the supply of God, they would do a water pouring ceremony. And that would remember how God provided water in the desert and how he provides for us living water. Now what they would do is the priest had like a golden cup or almost like a, more of like a pitcher. And he would go off with a group of worshipers and priests to the pool of Siloam. The pool of Siloam literally means scent. This is John chapter nine. You guys remember the story. There was a man born blind. Jesus healed that man and he told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And he washed his eyes and came back seeing. This is what the Lord does for us when he touches us with the Holy Spirit. He opens our eyes, if you will, to see who he is and who we are in Christ. Well, the priest would lead kind of a parade, if you will, and they would go to the pool of Siloam and he would take this golden pitcher and he would dip it in the pool and then they would enter back into the temple proper through the water gate, which we see was a uh, great, terrible thing that happened under President Nixon. No, just kidding, never mind. The water gate was actually a, an entrance gate back into the temple. And he would have a pitcher of water and another priest would have a pitcher of wine. And they would go to the altar and each day they would take the pitcher of water and the pitcher of wine. They would circle the altar once and they would pour the water and the wine out together as a drink offering to the Lord. When our Lord was on the cross in John chapter 19, he breathed his last and a Roman soldier took a spear and pierced his heart and out from his side flowed blood and water. The Jews may not have known this, but they were rehearsing what was going to happen at the cross in the pouring of the water and wine called a libation. Now, as this was occurring, as they were going to get the water, there was another group of worshipers that would go down to an area where there are all all these uh, leafy trees and so forth. This is recorded in Leviticus 23. Let's uh, skip ahead for a moment so we can take a look. It says, on exactly the 15th day, Leviticus 23, 39, of the seventh month. This is known as the month of Tishri. So it's the fall now. When you have gathered the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day, 40. Now on the first day, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. Now, as one group of worshipers was going to get the water for the water pouring ceremony, another group was going down to get these trees. And what they called these was the four species. They basically collected a lemon-type fruit that they would hold in one hand called an etrog. It's spelled E-T-H-R-O-G. It looks like a lemon. And then they would, throw, they would hold three different species in their other hand, uh, a myrtle, a willow, and a palm. And they would emerge from this area and they would, they would be coming up to the temple and what they would be doing is waving these, uh, this combination, oftentimes known as a lulav, and they would wave it, and there's, I've seen some different uh, commentary on this, but the idea is they would wave it kind of like this or wave it to the four corners of the earth. Maybe you can see in that perhaps a cross. But you can also see the four corners of the world being bid to come. Now, as they waved some of these long branches, the rabbis and scholars believe that this was a picture of the Ruach. What's that? The Holy Spirit. The wind of God. And they would, they would wave these and they would basically be saying, to the four corners of the earth. May the truth of God go out. May you call the nations to yourself. That's kind of the image that's before us. And these worshipers would then meet in the courtyard at the, uh, the, the place I mentioned earlier, and they would celebrate these rites every day, the water pouring ceremony with the wine, the, uh, 
the, the uh, waving back of the branches and the fruit, which is supposed to represent the, the promised land and the blessings of God and even point us to the Messiah. Now, if you fast forward in your Bible for a second to John, the book of John, we have some imagery of tabernacles. John chapter 1, if you turn with me there, we have the idea of Jesus tabernacling among us. We all live in sukkahs, brothers and sisters. Did you know that? You live in a sukkah. It's, your body is called in scripture a tent. Now, when you're younger, the tent is pretty stable. Uh, not a lot of tears in it. Not a lot of holes. Not a lot of drooping. However, years in mileage begin to add up. And then there's tears. And then holes. And then a not so strong wind blows and you droop a little bit. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm saying? All right. We live in a temporary sukkah, a tent. Our body is a tent, 2 Corinthians 5.1. But we're waiting for a new sukkah. Can I get a witness? And when we get that new sukkah, no more curse, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more tears. It will be without sin and without the curse. Now how this came about is that our God took on a sukkah. He tabernacled among us. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. John 1.1, 1, 1, the Word was God, all the way down to 14. The Word became flesh. That's his incarnation. And he dwelt among us. The idea of dwelling among us takes us all the way back. And maybe, guys, you, uh, Darren, you could throw up the picture of the camp with the fire. What God instructed in the book of Exodus, and we've been going through the book of Exodus on Wednesday nights, is that uh, this would be like one of the first ones with the uh, fire and the, the tents all around. So, so basically what happened is God dwelt in the midst of his people. There you can see. And he instructed Moses how to build his uh, sanctuary. And you can see that there was, there was a courtyard and then you came into what was back then a tent of meeting or a tabernacle. And the, the idea of a tabernacle was God wanted a tabernacle among his people. But what kept his people from closeness to him is captured in one word. The word is sin. And so each piece of furnishing within this structure points to Christ. There's an altar of sacrifice. There's a basin for washing. There's a table of showbread. He's the bread of life. There's a menorah for light. There's a incense area for prayer. There's the Ark of the Covenant where the mercy seat is. And as you move through the outer place outside the, that area, the first thing that you hit is a area of sacrifice. There's got to be sacrifice for us to go beyond that. Then a wash basin. Then you enter into the uh, holy place where the table of showbread and the menorah and the uh, altar of incense are, etc. And then finally, the only way you move into the holy of holies back then was you have to be the high priest. But now you and I enter the holy of holies, how? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he inaugurated through the veil of his sukkah his flesh. And now we have access to our God. In fact, our God tabernacles in us. Amen? The Holy Spirit, the Ruach, is the down payment of our future redemption. He's the guarantee of what God's going to do in the future. And there, by him, we cry, Abba, Father. We belong to the family of God. Well, Jesus in John 1.14, he came, he became one of us. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. This could be rendered. He uh, pitched his sukkah among us. And we saw what? His glory. 
The glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skip down to verse uh, 16. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, if you flip over to John chapter 7, I want to show you something that happened in Jesus' earthly ministry. John is talking about Jesus walking in Galilee, and uh, there were those who were seeking to kill him. Jesus had a target on him for much of his ministry. Notice in John 7, 2, it says, Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of what? Booths, was near. So that's Sukkot. That's the feast we're talking about today. And uh, his brothers began to ask him about going to the feast, etc. Now, as I was painting the picture for you of the water pouring ceremony, there, were, there was something that happened on the last day of the feast that was unique to that day, the seventh day of the feast. And that is that the priest would circle the altar on that last day seven times, almost as if to say, it's complete, it's done. From the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. They would pour the water and the wine out again, the, the water and the blood, if you will. So as they did this ceremony, there are many people that believe that Jesus made a well-known declaration. It's found in John 7, 37. Keep in mind, we've just seen uh, talk about the Feast of Booze. Now on the last day, John 7, 37, and by the way, this holiday was simply known as the feast or our season of gladness. Um, on the last day, day seven of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, if Jesus made this declaration during the water pouring ceremony, you can see the great significance of this. All the people would be focused on, you know, what the priest was doing and the waving of the palms and all of that. And then Jesus, somewhere in the temple area, if any of you are thirsty, you want to know what the fulfillment of this image is? Come to me and drink. Now, keep reading. It says, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You want to drink water that will actually quench your thirst, woman at the well, flow out of you? Here it is. Notice. But this he spoke of the Spirit, pneuma in Greek, ruach in Hebrew, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet Glorified. Think of the images, the water and the wine, the waving of the branches and the wind, the celebration and the joy. And Jesus basically says to the people, if you want to know what this is about, come to me and I'll satisfy your thirst. And I would ask you at this point, are those living waters flowing? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you drunk of the water of life that he gives? Now, Jesus did some amazing things. If you uh, flip to John 12, this is a sukkah, sukkot kind of event. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. The people are excited. John 12 reads this way. On the next day, the large crowd, John 12, 12, who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, we have fast-forwarded to Passover. But notice what they do. They took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. We remember the words of the apostles. Is it at this time that you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? Are we entering into tabernacles? Are we entering into when you're on the throne? And Jesus finding a young donkey, donkey sat on it. He had to pay for our sins first as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. Seated on a donkey's colt. And we know that Jesus would ride in on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So the, the people kind of saw this as a way to celebrate or rejoice. Is the kingdom coming? But Jesus had to first be our Passover before we could experience tabernacles. Before God could dwell in us and with us, if you will. 
uh, we had to first have our sins atoned for. In Ezekiel 37, it says this about the nation of Israel, and many see this as the resurrection and restoration of Israel as a nation. Write this down, Ezekiel 37, 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them, It will be an everlasting covenant. He's speaking of Israel with them. I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Ezekiel 37, 26 to 28. Now, uh, Zechariah 14 tells us that the nations of the world will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in the Millennial Kingdom. It says these words, just to cut to the chase. It says, it will come about that all those who are left of the nations, Zechariah 14, 16, that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and celebrate the Feast of Booths, Zechariah 14, 16. It is interesting, this feast is going to be celebrated as Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem. So it'd be good if we got to know it a little bit. Amen? And you're going to have, apparently, I'm going to have a custom-made sukkah because he's gone to prepare a place for us. I think it'll be a better than a sukkah. You know, I don't think it's going to be a flimsy tent. I think it's going to be an awesome thing. Whatever, whatever it is the Lord's going to do. Now, This is the image of the water. Let me share with you one other thing that happened daily in the evening. It was called the lamp lighting ceremony. In the court of the women, this is the place where those 13 trumpet-shaped chests were for offerings where Jesus saw the widow give her two mites and commented on that. The the people would crowd in, and maybe, Darren, you could show those pictures that you had up a moment ago. They would crowd into an area called the Court of the Women. And they would lamp these, they would light these huge 75 feet high candelabra. They would put oil on the top of them. They would use priestly, worn out priestly garments for wicks. And what's interesting about that is they may have been blood-stained priestly garments. And the young priest would climb to the top and they would fill the top with oil. I think we have a, a picture of that. And uh, these candelabra would be lit. Now remember, in a time with no electricity, Jerusalem during tabernacles in the evening would be known as the light of the world. As these huge candelabra were, you know, glowing in the sky. It would be a city set on a hill. You could see the light from everywhere And especially if you were in a tent, you know, somewhere on the landscape for the feast. Now, these huge candelabra were to remember the glory cloud that led Israel through the desert at night. The lit cloud, remember, that lighted their way. And that represented the presence of the Lord or the glory of God. He is our light. And Jesus made another claim John chapter 8, just flip back a few pages. During the feast, here's what it says, John 8. And it may well be that Jesus declared this while those candelabra were roaring with their flames. Jesus again spoke to them saying, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, can you imagine the kind of attention you might get (laughs) if the people are going through their celebrations, the priests are trying to get everything right. On the seventh day, the priest would hold the pitcher, the libation, the water, and the people would say, raise it higher, raise it higher. They said it was the uh, moment of a lifetime to be at the water pouring ceremony. And then these huge candelabra were lit at night and priests were twirling around. Yes, they danced. And they had a flute player playing the flute as they came with the branches and I think even orchestras at night and the flute player was called the pierced one. That's interesting, isn't it? And they would sing and they would dance and they would 
focus on um, the, the Psalms of Ascent, which are Psalms, I think it's 120 through 134. The 15 steps up to the temple proper from the court of the women and the candelabra and the twirling priest and they would celebrate and they would sing and there would be joy, 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 joy down in our hearts. Where? Thank you. They were commanded to rejoice. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Again I say, rejoice. Now, Sometimes life is hard. I don't feel like rejoicing. <laughs> Who can rejoice on the 91 freeway? <laughs> if you can, I'd like to know your secret. <laughs> but see, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And I, I will tell you, you know, we all struggle with it. I struggle with it. Not to be pessimistic. Not to be, you know, a negative person in a world like ours, right? But Israel had their problems. When these feasts were going on in Jesus' day, Rome had Israel under its thumb, and yet they were commanded to rejoice. Can I ask you, can you still rejoice even when everything's not perfect in your life? I mean, that's what we're called to do. Because we're people who trust the Lord through all the seasons. And I know it's hard when you're going through something. When you don't understand, when you've been praying for a healing, when you have a person that you love hurting or you've lost somebody. But remember that this feast uh, gives us a, a look to the future when the Lord will be in the midst of his people. It's one of the things I just want to point out to you and I and I know you'll know it when I say it. Between John 7, 37 through 39 and John 8, 12, there's a story sandwiched right in there. There's been a little debate among biblical scholars whether John 8, 1 through 11 belongs where it's situated. I'm gonna just say I think it belongs there. And it's a famous story about a woman caught in the act of adultery. And she's thrust before Jesus and the Religious leadership is trying to trap him because they wanted to kill him. And they thought, well, if, if he says to stone the woman, then the people will think he's not gracious, perhaps. Or if he says, don't, don't do anything to her, then he doesn't keep the, the Torah. He doesn't keep the law of Moses. So they thought they had him, you know, between the rock and the hard place. And he knelt down on the ground and he began to write. We don't know what he wrote. Some people think he wrote something for Jeremiah um, I think the verse may be up here. Uh, anyway, but he began to write, write, write on the ground. Maybe he was writing the sins of all the accusers. <laughs> Maybe he was writing the Ten Commandments. Maybe he was writing a verse from Jeremiah. That's open to debate. But he, said, he finally rose up after writing on the ground and they impatiently waiting for him. And he said, okay, he who is without sin, you can go ahead and throw the first rock at her. And from the oldest to the youngest, they departed. And Jesus said, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, there's none, Lord. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, the one who came to tabernacle among us came for a reason. To bring us living water, to bring us light in the face of our own failures. This is the gospel. Because if, look, y'all know this. The Lord, every time you do something, he catches you in the act. Do you know that? <laughs> You're not hiding anything from him. And if he kept a record of our sin, none of us could stand. But that one who said, I don't condemn you, was the one who was about to go to the cross and be condemned. He's the fulfillment of these feasts. He is our hope. He is our God. And he gives us hope through every season. I want to just take you to a couple final verses and we're done. I want to show you just some Sukkot images in Revelation. Let's turn all the way to the last book of our Bibles. Revelation. We'll start in verse 7. Now there's, this is a section about a group of people that appear in heaven quite 
uh, rapidly. They're, they're not there and then they're there. I believe this is the raptured church. That's open to debate. But I want you to see what's said about them. Uh, the question is, well, who are they? Where'd they come from? Look at 714 of Revelation. I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple or tabernacle. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. It's a beautiful image of a sukkah here. And they will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, notice, and will guide them to the springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Notice the sukkah, the water. We think of the ceremonies that we've touched on all the way to Revelation chapter 21. Now this new heaven and new earth takes us all the way into the millennial kingdom of Christ, the rule and reign of Christ. Uh, fast forwarding to when death and sin are no more, the curse is gone. 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell. These are all key ideas with tabernacles. Among them, 21.3, they shall be his people. God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Will they be crying in heaven? Maybe for a little bit because he's wiping away tears. And there will be no longer any death, no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, praise God, for the first things have passed away. He who sits on the throne says, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life. Again, I want you to go back to some of those tabernacle images of the ceremonies. Notice, without cost. Fast forward all the way down to 22 of the same chapter. I saw no temple in it. That is the new Jerusalem for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. The ceremony points forward to this kingdom. The candelabra pointing to this future glorious city for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the lamb and the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And then all the way down to 22.3, there will be no longer, no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in it. His bondservants will serve him. And then the height of all heights, they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign, let's say it together, saints, forever and ever. And he said to me, you know, because sometimes we read this and we're like, this sounds too good to be true. These words are faithful and true. Father, thank you for this time we've been able to share on this beginning of Tabernacles. Thank you for our friends at Beit Shalom who will celebrate tonight. Uh, and they have their own sukkah over there and we pray that you would bless them. Thank you for a, a, a visual way that we can remember some of these concepts with the sukkah out in the courtyard, with the ceremonies that we painted some pictures, pictures of, the, the water pouring ceremony with the water and the wine, the candelabras with the light. And then these declarations that you made, Lord, perhaps at the very moment that they were happening, come to me, follow me. I'll give you living water. I'll give you light. These are things that we need so desperately, Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. 
in a dry and dusty and weary land where there is no water. Some people are saying, is there any hope? Is there any future? Is there anyone steering the ship? The answer is yes. And you have fixed a day when you will judge the world. You will come again. You will save your people. You will spread your sukkah over them. You will judge this world and renew everything that's been so muddied. Oh, God, forgive us. We think about our country. We think about this world. We think about our own personal lives. Oh, thank you for the hope. This is, this is on the calendar. There, there's no change in it. It's going to happen. And the good news is that we are going to be part of it because we are your children. We are your bride. Thank you for preparing a place for us. Would you take a Selah moment? Would you just let the word of God, just let it pour down into your soul. Take a moment to ask the Lord what he'd have you to do with the truth that was shared. If you're not a Christian, this would be a wonderful time on the beginning of Tabernacles to pray a prayer. Oh, Lord, save me. I've been away for a long time. Thank you that, Jesus, you came to dwell among us. God in human flesh, thank you for dying on that terrible cross, rising from the dead in the resurrection. I feel like that woman, condemned, and yet you died for me. Prayed if it's you. I repent of my sin. I place my trust in you, not just as my Savior, but as my King, my soon coming King. Maybe you've been a prodigal. Maybe you have found yourself in some dry, dark places. Well, the Lord, if you open the door to him, he'll bring the water, he'll bring the light. And for all the saints, Father, who are here, moving through the different seasons of life, times of great joy and times of challenge, may you bless them, keep them, May your beautiful face shine upon them. May you give them grace and peace until the Prince of Peace comes or we go to be with him. Thank you, Father. Spread your grace over your people. Pour it out. Illumine us. We're just grateful that we've had these moments together. We love you. I give you the glory. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Would you stand?